0: Hello and welcome to the 2021 Dublin Literary Award Shortlist podcast presented as part
1: of International
0: Literature Festival Dublin.
1: Hi, my name is Maeve Higgins. And my name is Jessica Trainer. And in this special podcast series, we're exploring each novel in detail as we chat exclusively to the authors shortlisted for the award. Now, the winner will be announced on the 20th of May as part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which, like the award, is sponsored by Dublin City Council.
0: The award is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English or translated into English worth €100,000 to the winner or winners. On today's episode, we'll be looking at Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Everisto. Um, And I have to say, this was one of those books that I kept gifting to other people, Maeve, in the hope that I would be able to borrow it back, but they kept not giving it back to me. So it was only recently that I got to sit down and read it. And it is just the most glorious tapestry of modern life of modern London life, but Mm -hmm. modern life in the West. And it's a book that brings together so many contemporary issues, but does so in a way that just feels absolutely joyous. And it's, 12 different women's stories told individually and as you read you realize that they are all interconnected and often I found myself in the individual sections just waiting you know dying to find out yeah what wondering where
1: be. is the connection
0: <laughs> exactly yeah yeah and it's so deftly done and um, and done with such skill and such ease that you have to think that Bernadine had a lovely time writing it you know the way sometimes there's a sense that somebody's taken joy in creating this work and that that kind of transfers over to you as the reader.
1: Yeah, I got that joy from it, actually. I mean, I I wonder that can also be, you know, as you know, as a writer yourself, deathly hard to create, right? Like good writing (laughs) and joyful writing with some levity in it is actually, it can be really hard. I mean, I don't know, I'm dying to hear how it was for her. <laughs> Absolutely. And and just
0: even I'm I'm gonna be talking to her about which voices came to her first, how they all connected together, and um, because as a novel it has a huge amount of craft in it as well as a lot of joy. Um and one of the really, really interesting things that she does with this novel is that she addresses lots of naughty, difficult contemporary issues um around gender, misogyny, racism. Um, you know, poverty, um, all of these different kinds of things and transgender identities. Mm -hmm. But she refuses to come at any of them from a simplistic place, you know. So all of our kind of modern pieties are challenged um, while there is a huge amount of acceptance and the humanity of each of these characters and their complexities and their flaws are just unraveled for us and unfolded for us in a a glorious way. Um, And it was so hard Mm -hmm. to choose uh, which of the sections to ask you to read a little extract (laughs) from. But in the end of the day, I went with um, a character called Yaz. Um, It's very difficult to find one character to really kind of explain the trajectory of this entire novel. But I chose Yaz because she is uh, demonstrative of the younger generation, and often in novels like this deal with contemporary life, the younger generation are painted as you know, and it doesn't matter which generation is doing the writing. The youngsters are shallow and they don't care and they're not engaged,
1: yes. um, and they're kind of ridiculed. Um, whereas, and in- and they and they just I don't people get them wrong. What? Like is, she's what is she like Generation Z? And yeah. <laughs> I thought I thought she was written so perfectly, you know by. By Bernadine Evaristo, who is herself, I think, in in her sixties. But I did um, spot that she's a lecturer, like she's a professor. So I guess she has like eighteen year olds coming through her life all the time. So I don't know, she got, I thought she got Yaz bang on.
0: I thought so too. And what I loved about Yaz in comparison to some of the older generations of women, because it really is an intergenerational novel going right back to the 19th century and looking at, you know, immigration and colour and various different uh, relationships and identities. But, you know, she, what she does with the younger generation is she shows them on the cusp of discovering just how difficult life is. And yet they still have this joy and this total like cheek and
1: this boldness. They haven't been beaten down like the rest of us. Yeah, yeah. So
0: and, and we just see that sense of the potential there. And I think to be a good lecturer, as you say, she's a professor, and but to really impart knowledge to people, you have to still have that sense of the joy of youth, you know, and that possibility and the fact that their optimism may be slightly misguided, but also is the thing that keeps us all going. You know, if we ran out of that optimism by the time we were 21 one, we would survive through, our, through middle age. <laughs> um, so I'd love if you read a little bit of, of Yaz here, because I think really this extract just shows her kind of exploding um, all of the different um, pieties around her in a really fun way.
1: Okay, perfect. Dad, the author of New York Times and Sunday Times bestselling trilogy, How We Live Then, 2000, How We Live Now. 2008, and How We Will Live in the Future, 2014. Dr. Roland Quarty, the country's first professor of modern life at the University of London. Really? All of it, Dad? She asked him when he told her proudly on the phone about his latest professorial number. Isn't that like a bit of a tall order? Don't you have to be an expert on everything in a world that encompasses over 7 billion people and like about... 200 countries and thousands of languages and cultures? Isn't that more like God's purview? Tell me, are you God now, Dad? I mean, officially. He mumbled stuff about the Internet of Things and Pokemon, terrorism and global politics, Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones, and then he threw in some quotes attributed to Derrida and Heidegger for good measure, which he always does when he can't handle a tricky situation. What about Bell Hooks? She shot back, quickly scrolling through the reading list for her gender, race and class module on her phone. What about Kwame Anthony Apaya, Judith Butler, Amy Cesar? What about Angela Davis, Simone de Beauvoir, Franz Fanon, Julia Kristova, Audrey Lorde, Edward Said, Gayatri Spivak, Gloria Steinem, VY Mundimbe, Cornel West and the rest? Dad didn't reply. He wasn't expecting this. The student outwitting the master. Grasshopper rocks. I mean, how on earth can you be a professor of modern life when your terms of reference are all male and actually all white? Even when you're not, she refrained from adding. When he eventually spoke, his voice was choked. His car had arrived, not cab, and he had to dash off. If true, the car, car equals limo and cab equals taxi would be to chauffeur him to a television studio because he regularly pops up on the telly to have arguments with people even more arrogant than himself. He's become a media whore. Mom opines disapprovingly. He was such a great guy before he became famous and was corrupted by celebrity. He used to believe in something. Now he only believes in himself. Your father is very establishment, Yaz. That's why they lionize him. He's not an outsider like me, trying to get a foot in the door and being given crumbs, Yaz, crumbs. Funnily enough, when Mum watches him on the telly, she begrudgingly agrees with pretty much everything he says. And she can't say she's an outsider now, she's on at the National. Dad did an epic sulk after Yaz's epic takedown. <laughs> I just love the family dynamics
0: here like and we have these two you know these two gay parents um who've come together like out of convenience to raise a family um and they all they all think they're different shades of woke and they all think they're different shades of with it but like nobody escapes a kind of a skewering at Bernadine's hands but it's such a fond skewering that you love them anyway you love them all <laughs>
1: Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, I mean, the dad is the focus of that one, but like Emma is the mother. um, She's another one of the 12 women in the book, right? She's Yaz's mom. And I love her character because she's been this artist on the fringes for many years. And now suddenly she's on at the National. She's like accepted into the mainstream. And there's parallels there with Bernadine Evaristo's own trajectory, I think anyway, from, from what I know about her career. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, you start off kind of at the coalface and the grassroots and
0: everything like that. And then, you know, the longer you are around, the the establishment will <laughs> kind of suck you in without you realizing it or not. Um, and yet at the same time, there's such a humanity to the book that everybody's foibles are kind of tolerated because they are the things that that, that make us tick to some extent. Um, so without further ado, we'll, we'll skip over and hear Bernadine talk about these amazing creations herself. Where to begin with this wonderful tapestry of a book, Bernadine? Um, And I suppose I'll ask a very simple question. Uh, We'll try and balance the questions between people who've already read the book. And if there's anyone out there who hasn't yet read it, hopefully we'll give them enough information Uh, to create a kind of a tantalising experience for them. Um, But what I really loved about this book, one of the things I loved about it was the way that this tapestry of voices just kind of spread out and out and out and out while remaining connected. And I had the feeling that it could go on forever. Um, And I kind of wanted it to, to be honest. But uh, I'd love to know which of the voices came to you first in terms of the very beginning of the project for you.
2: Yeah. Well, hi, good to talk to you. Um, it was actually Carol who, uh, so the book wasn't written in the order that it is now, you know, that that became the final version. So Carol was a character in something I'd previously written for the radio. And it was, I was commissioned by uh, the BBC to write a short story, um, commemorating Dylan Thomas's centenary. And I loved Under Milkwood as well. I still do, actually. But as a child, as a teenager, I loved Under Milkwood. And so this was a perfect commission for me because I thought I can pay homage to him. And so I decided I was going to write about different kinds of black women in the way that he wrote about these little people living in a little village in Wales, who would not normally be the subjects of fiction. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do it with black women. And so I created these four characters, one of whom was trans and one of whom was Carol. Although I don't think I called her Carol at that point. And then as I wrote this story stroke narrative poem, I really liked it. I just love the idea of having so many different kinds of black women in, in a novel, you know, in a bigger work, such as a novel. And so, Carol then became the first character I wrote for girl, woman, other. And you know, this is a story I don't normally talk about when I talk about this novel, and I have talked about it six million times um, because it's it's a bit kind of convoluted. But that actually was the origin of the book. And it was Carol who started the novel. And then at some point I shifted her to um, away from the front of the novel to sort of um, at the beginning, but not quite at the very beginning.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's the wonderful thing about the novel is that we, we could approach it from so many different directions. Um, and yet every story is is pivotal in terms of how this entire tapestry hangs together and how this entire community hangs together. Um, And one of the things I really loved about it was I I spent a little bit of time living in London when I was a student. And just to me, it, it was that London experience. And I think sometimes we can see London as this huge faceless kind of international city, but actually it is this space of all of these tightly woven communities, even if they don't necessarily have the time to acknowledge each other. But one of the things I loved about it as well, because I have a bit of a theatre background, is the fact that the the kind of defining moment in the event that brings them all together is Amma's opening night at the National. Um, and I've spent, uh, well, less time than I'd like, but I have gone to see lots of shows in the National during my time working in, in the Abbey Theatre in Ireland, which is our national theatre. So I would have been over and back a little bit. And um, so you really, really captured the atmosphere of the place, you know, both its kind of brutalist nature, but also its kind of, I suppose it's, it's attempts to lean into a more progressive kind of theatre. know these things take a time but I I love the notion that the last Amazon of Dahomey would be opening on the national stage Um, and you have a background in theatre yourself Bernadine. I do.
2: (laughs) Tell us a little bit about that. Well actually the the novel opens with Amma who is the only character um, really loosely based on myself, at least my younger self and I came of age in the early 80s and I trained as an actress at drama school um, what was then called Rose Bruford College of Speech and Drama, and they had what was called a community theater arts course. And that was, the, I think it was the only one of its kind. And it was basically there to train actors to create their own theater. And it was the making of me. So while I was there, I became very politicized, uh, very much involved in the alternative theater world and mindset. And when I left, um, I formed a theater company with two of my fellow black women at college, and it was called Theatre of Black Women. And I s- then spent the next six years working in theatre, first as an actor and writer, um, both together, and then um, managing. eventually managing the company. And the course that I was on, and I can't give it credit enough in a sense, because it did train you to be an actor, but it also trained you to be a socially aware person. Mm. And And the drama schools at that time were not like that. They trained you in the skills of performance and that was it. And then you were out there in the job market looking for work, whereas we were given the skills to create our own work. And in a sense, that's what I've been doing ever since. So when I was writing Girl, Woman, Other, I really wanted to capture that moment that had been so important to me when I emerged into a very... Well, it's, it's probably hard to think about it now, but a very male mm. theatre and performance world and also um, essentially white world. And there was really little opportunity for us as black women. And the work that was offered would be the kind of jobs you wouldn't want to take, you know, paying very kind of menial roles and didn't want to do that. And, you know, today we have cross-racial casting, we have cross-gender casting, we have Glenda Jackson playing King Lear in her 80s. And, you know, it's very easy to forget that that didn't happen 40, 40, yeah, I have to gulp sometimes when I say this, 40 years ago, (laughs) it's like, whoa, that's a long time. And so Amma was about that world that i i came out into um came out because i was also a lesbian in my 20s and then i i i went straight again and it was a community of women of color and also women generally who were there creating our own artistic product without really having to respond to to men um and in a very patriarchal society so in a nutshell, that was what I was trying to capture with the book—that part of my early life—and it's so it is so wonderfully and vividly
0: captured. And I love the moment where where Anna and Dominique meet and they start talking about being sick of the kind of roles that they're offered all the time. Yeah. You know, <laughs> kind of nurse or nanny or criminal or that's it, you know, the, 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 are the <laughs> options. Um, and I think the book really reflects on that kind of that the progress that's been made over the past 40 years. Um, but also on the fragile nature of that progress. You know, we're definitely not on safe ground here. And, um, you know, and, and I think the notion that history is kind of cyclical is very much alive in the book and the notion that although there are characters like the, the transgender character of Megan, who is kind of carving a space for themselves, that it's difficult and, and that it's not simple and that nothing is black and white. Absolutely. You know, you don't, you're, this is a tremendously humane book, but you don't go easy on any of your characters and you expose and tease out all of their foibles in a way that I just enjoyed so much. Um, and I'd love to talk a little bit about how the younger generation is represented in the book because Yaz is just one of my favorite characters. I think Yaz is my raging id. You know, I would love to be Yaz. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think it's rare to see that younger generation um, portrayed in a way that feels slightly optimistic. You know, there's, it's so easy to portray like post millennial. Gen Zers as these awful, cynical, uh, self-absorbed people, that would have been the easy thing to do. But but we really, you know, Yaz has this wonderful kind of egotistical sense of herself in the world, but she is also open to experience. And she's at this wonderful point where her and her friends, Boris and Nanette, are kind of unencumbered by the realities of sociopolitical political life. And um, they're attuned to them. And, but really, they're only starting to take effect, and there's a sense of the cracks forming in their in their group. Um, and and re, why were you drawn to write about young people in this kind of more, I suppose, generous way? Do you feel?
2: Yeah. Well, I, you know, I I really do like young people, mm-hmm. and I like to have them in my life. I'm a I'm an academic as well, so I teach at university. So as I get older, the students stay the same age. <laughs> you know, the, the the undergrads usually come in at the age of eighteen or nineteen. Yes. Um, so that kind of keeps me in touch. But I've also, for a long time now, had younger friends. Um, but then as they get older, I think, oh no, now you're in your thirties. You're starting to acquire all this baggage. So I need to make some younger <laughs> friends because they haven't got the baggage. It's <laughs> very self-serving friendships. But I, and I, of course I was young. And the, the thing about the book is that it does span all so many ages and I'm 62, well actually, yeah, nearly 62. So I, I've i got the the vision backwards and also the vision forwards. Yeah, or rather the experience backwards and the vision forwards. And so it's also very easy to stay in touch with young people if you're on social media. Mm-hmm. because that's where they play out their dramas. Mm-hmm. And that's where you see the politics playing out. And I, I am quite busy on social, med- social media, so it's a wonderful way into worlds that I'm not always directly connected to. Mm-hmm. And with Yaz, I, I I do feel very affectionate and compassionate to all my characters. Sometimes it was harder to do that with some more than others. But with Yaz, it was very easy, and she is absolutely one of my two favourite characters. I have to admit it, she entertains me.
0: Yeah.
2: And she is very loosely based on one of my goddaughters, who is now way past it, because she's nearly 30, Yes, I tell her. <laughs> it's like, you're old, you're nearly middle-aged. Um, but when she was 19, and she's really bright, and was and is, but also very feisty, very outspoken, and very sure about things. And I think that is some of what we are when we're younger. You know, we can be very sure about things. Um, Things are very black and white, as you said. You know, it's it's a binary world we're living in. And it was the world I lived in. You know, this men are bad, women are good. That's it. You know, and then life happens and you realize actually we're full of complexity and messiness, and you, you cannot reduce anybody to any kind of type or whatever. And so, through Yaz, I was able to explore a young black woman who is, you know, in the sense at the beginning of her adult life, she's 19, she's at university, she's got her, you know, her squad of friends and she is, she's is being very, becoming very alert to the world around her. She's very ambitious. She's actually comes from a privileged background, but she doesn't recognize that. You know, so I, I'm playing around with a lot of the politics of the moment as well. So Yaz is like, I'm a black woman, so uh, yeah, you're white, so you've got white privilege. And then her little white friend who grew up on a farm in, in the east of England with no money and the farmers in debt to the bank says, no, 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 no. Don't tell me I'm privileged because you grew up, your dad's a professor and your mum's a theatre director Mm. and you grew up in metropolitan London, whereas I grew up on a farm and everybody ends up working in a factory from my school. So, and then Yaz is like, Oh yeah, I hadn't thought of that. (laughs) So, so, you know, it's all, you know, the book is, is so many things, as you said, but it's also, there's this politics, I'm playing with politics throughout it and nobody probably people can't see where, where my politics lie because it's kind of delivered through all these different perspectives and points of view and they may clash. And in Yaz, I was able to sort of use her as a filter for all the things that I'm interested in with that young perspective, um, that young woke perspective that we, you know, I see around me at the moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I, lo- I love that. And I love the moment where Courtney uh, starts quoting Roxanne Gay. at. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> and yes, it's like, what? Where did you hear? How did you know about Roxanne game? You know, <laughs> fantastic.
0: Talking about oppression Olympics. Um, yeah, did feel, you know, I I do feel, you know, as I said earlier, I do feel it's a very humane book in the sense that, you know, obviously myself, I would find myself kind of cleaving to the leftist narratives at play. But I do, <laughs> I enjoy all those challenges. I think they're wonderful. And did it feel at the moment? You know, I mean, obviously the book wasn't written yesterday, but. You know, in this particular moment, I feel like a lot of the overarching discourse is around alienation and silos and and uh, a kind of disconnection and misunderstanding and the difficulties of communicating through social media. And, you know, this, this kind of really fractured modern discourse. Um, did it feel important to be writing a novel that's essentially about connection in spite of those things?
2: Oh, interesting. Well, you know... I wasn't really thinking about that. Mm. But, you know, because the book does deal with so many different things, I think there are so many different ways of looking at it. And definitely I was thinking about just very specific connection between the women because that was the way in which it could be a novel as opposed to short stories. Because as we know, they all have their own chapters Mm -hmm. and it could have been very fragmented, but actually it is a cohesive novel. And so for that to happen, I had to have them in in interrelationship with each other. When I began the book, which was 2013, I, I really didn't think it was of the moment in the slightest. And it wasn't. Wow. It's so interesting that what happened in between was meet the Me Too movement, which yeah. kind of raised the profile of women's voices, and Black Lives Matter, which raised the profile of black voices. And hey, hey, ho, you've got a book about black women. <laughs> wow. Many black women with lots of different voices. And so then it became something that was topical. So when I, by the time I finished the book, I was like, you know something, I don't write topical books at all. My books are very much their own thing, and I don't really kind of take into account contemporary trends at all right probably Mm. to my detriment but with this book I thought my god this is so on the money in terms of the conversations we're having at the moment surely it's got to do better than my previous books just in terms of sales and so on Um, little little did I know what was ahead, (laughs) which is just the most incredible thing. But it yeah, so it became of the moment, but it wasn't when I began it.
0: Yeah, but I mean, and again, it's for me what really what what really landed with me and what really spoke to me was that notion of just the simplicity of human connection and the necessity of human connection. You know, it's inescapable. All of these women are connected in a way that's absolutely believable. Um, and in a way that we see reflected around us in our own communities. Um, And to me, that just kind of gave me a little bit of of, of hope uh, at a very dark moment in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of, you know, rowing back of women's rights across the world um, uh, and the rise of the far right. um, Although I don't know how long we can keep calling it the rise. I think it's risen. Um, But, you know, just I think it's so important for us to be reminded about the actuality of connection. You know, it's not a discourse. It just exists. Um, mm. And people are connected in this real human way. And I found that really beautifully mapped out in the novel. Um, but you did mention a few minutes ago, and I'm intrigued by this, and I was dying to ask you, that some of the voices were a little bit more difficult to write and inhabit in terms of your own politics, which obviously this book is not about, so we won't ask you to nail those colours to the mast, but I think we have a sense. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wanted to ask... Oh, you, you don't, don't know.
2: <laughs> I might be a Tory. You don't know. <laughs>
0: um and I was intrigued about Penelope in particular because I thought she was a a, a wonderful uh creation um uh, but I would imagine maybe one of the more difficult voices to write
2: yeah very good very good <laughs> she was actually Penelope um dare I say it was was uh kind of based on somebody I know and don't like <laughs> and uh who will probably never read my work. So that's fine. I mean, yeah, we writers are ruthless. We use everybody around us in our work, but so yes. And so I wrote this character with this person I know in mind. And I think my interpretation of her was really one-sided and I wasn't allowing her to be a fully fledged human being because I was projecting into her, my negative attitudes towards this person who, Was the bane of my life at one point. And so it was really hard to make her likable. Now, this is, this is interesting because the characters don't have to be likable. And as you said earlier, you know, they are all flawed, you know, imperfect people in an imperfect world. That's what I tell my students all the time, right? And so they are. But I also have a connection to all of them myself as the creator, I have a connection to them and I didn't have a connection to Penelope because when I (laughs) saw this creation, I was thinking of this person. And so I had to work really hard, you know, and I, she was, yeah, just to, to, to give her that humanity in a sense, I had to get past my own feelings in order to bring her to life as somebody who was just complex like everybody else. And she has all different sides to her. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And ends up, without giving too much away, be, being
0: pivotal, I think, in the novel um, in terms of, of knitting everything together for us. Um, we talked a little bit about the young people in the novel, but one of the, the real discoveries for me throughout it were... The, the inner lives of the older women in the novel. And um, because I still feel that that is an aspect of, of life. Now, it's definitely being explored in more fiction, but I still think the inner lives of older women uh, is something that, that is kind of hugely neglected. Um, and, you know, there's that wonderful moment where Winsome is asked about being a woman in her own right and she realizes that she's never been a woman in her own right she's gone from being a daughter to being a wife to being a mother and um, and did it feel important for you to to bring so you know boomy winsome hattie grace did it feel important for you to bring those characters centre stage
2: and penelope actually and penelope of course yeah that so so older women are really well represented yeah and and actually if you think about it Amma is is late fifties, sixties, you know. So yeah. the, and the other thing about the book is that their ages do span their most for most of them, really it does span their entire lives. Yes. So even though you might meet Hattie at 93, you also know you knew about her before she was born, actually, through her mother. Yes. <laughs> so and you've seen something of her childhood and so on. It was really important. And this is this is a drum I have been banging for some time now, and that is the way in which older women are just marginalized in fiction, but actually in life as well. Mm -hmm. And when the more I think about it, the more angry it makes me and the more, um, the more I want us to, to wake up to the fact that when you've lived a long life, you have more stories to tell, not less. And yet our society is just obsessed with people just arriving. Yeah. As adults, you know, all these profiles you see or features all the time in the magazines, in the newspapers, it's always about somebody who's just emerged, as opposed to somebody who has such a breadth of knowledge and experience and wisdom and insight. And so as we get older, I would argue that we are more interesting, right? Yeah. if you're if you able to get beneath people's facades, because also our facades are probably more in place as well because we're more guarded because we've had more experience of life. And so it was so important for me to have the span of ages and also to have older women who were out there and making the most of their lives and not being crushed by it. Because that is what happens when we see older representation often, not always, in say fiction. Uh, and to a certain extent on, on television or on screen, they are people who are damaged, you know, and, and or they have dementia. Yeah. I haven't seen The Father, and I'm sure he's wonderful, Anthony Hopkins. And I was thinking, what is this film about? Because I hadn't really heard about it. And then I saw it was about an old man with dementia, and I thought, okay, well, this is a big subject for everybody in our society. And, of course, we should have those stories out there. But I think we have too many of them out there about older people. Mm. And actually... There are so many other ways in which we can explore people at a great age. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do with the book so that there are triumphs in all of their lives. And even when you get to Hattie's age and she is 93, she's still independent. She's compus She's formidable. She's fierce. And she knows that she's at the end of her life, but she's not going into a care home no, they're not going to, like she says, you know, I'm going to blow my brains out. That's that's what I think about your care. home. You're not going to take me. And I love that fastiness. So I think it's a big issue that we have to keep talking about because, because we have been made invisible. Yes. yeah. I, just, just one more thing. So I I've been doing, you know, in my sort of post book a glamorous life, I've been doing photo shoots and I was doing some photo shoots with a photographer who um, doesn't like you to wear makeup or to, to use any filters. And we know that filters are par for the course with photographs for everybody basically these days. And I just thought, yeah, but you're used to photographing 19-year-olds. <laughs> You know, come on, I need the makeup and I wouldn't mind just a soft filter. Yeah. Because all we see, all we see are young people or older people who have had stuff done, you know, actors and so yeah. on have had stuff done. Anyway, I'll leave it there. No, <laughs> yeah, but it's I and mean, it's so interesting, and it brings me back to the notion of what you were saying
0: about about Glenda Jackson playing King Lear. And I think we're so used to this narrative of, you know, flawed man loses his power, gets old, loses everything, and we feel sorry for him. And I, 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 <laughs> yeah. we don't necessarily see that played out with women. We just see battle acts.
2: That's right. That's right. King
0: Lear, oh, he did some things wrong, but we're sorry for him in the end. And it's a tragedy, by the way. Uh, whereas, yeah. you know, Goneril and Reagan <laughs> are the bad guys. It's, it's an interesting oh. dynamic and it's one I've been thinking about a lot. And, and, and as you said, the notion that none of these women are crushed I thought was such an important mm. thing in the book, um,
2: and really, really, refreshing. hopefully uplifting, uplifting for the reader. Essentially, yeah. you know, that's if, if that's a result of the book, then I'm really, I think it's a job well Absolutely. done. Absolutely,
0: and I'm just I, the vision of of Boomy with her cleaners. Going to the Niger Delta and cleaning everything up, I just thought it was one of the most <laughs> glorious kind of flights of fancy in the book. I just loved it. Um, but just to, to go back to the notion of of the the areas of complexity in the book, I mean, one of the kind of plots that really sucked me in was the relationship between Dominique and nazinga because I just thought it was so... Again, it feels quite new to see domestic abuse and coercive control depicted in a same-sex relationship. Um, And I I found it really, really moving. Um, And yet with with Nzinga as well, there was the sense that, you know, this is not just a villain. This is somebody whose attitudes have been formed and hardened by trauma. Um, And did it feel important for you to, to
2: explore that kind of dynamic
0: in the book at this moment?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm always, I always want to be provocative as a writer for a start Mm. and I don't want to give people what they think they're going to get. Mm. (laughs) So for a start, there's an absence of lesbian relationships in fiction. I mean, they exist, but there aren't that many. And I did not want to present an idealized relationship as as in the same way that my characters are not idealized. They are very real people. So I wanted this to be a very real relationship and the whole idea of domestic abuse within a lesbian relationship, I think people find very shocking. Mm. And it's, it's not really that, unless they have, you know, that, ex- that direct experience themselves, it's not even as if people have been thinking about, well, of course, lesbians don't beat each other yeah. up or whatever, you know. <laughs> it's not even that it's in people's kind of um, m- imaginations, I think. It's just that we have an idea of how women are, And we have an idea of male violence, but we are not so familiar with female violence. Mm. And so to then position that within Mm. this, you know, relationship that's very loving to begin with, but also very controlling, actually, from the very beginning as well. We can't see it. I'm sorry, we can see it. Dominic can't see Mm. it. was a really interesting project as a writer. And because I like to be provocative and I like to take risks, and I find that very thrilling Yeah, that I'm going into an area that people are not going to expect to see because I would imagine people thinking about me writing this book, they'd think, oh, they're all going to be happy, very happy, you know, lovely women. They're going to be a bit, vic- you know, they're going to be victims and there's going to be a lot of suffering, which people do think, and it's not true. But um that's what that was one of the things that people expected. So there's going to be a lot of suffering. They're going to be victims, but they're not going to think of the women as capable of some of the things that women are capable of in the book, yeah. which we won't go into because there's something else that happens that people are like, oh, that was shocking. And I'm like, yeah, but it happens. Yeah. So so yeah, so it's throwing all those things into the mix um, throughout the book, but perhaps most most surprisingly with that lesbian relationship, mm. and for me that was exciting as a writer.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and it is it is interesting that we kind of still think around women's relationships in these kind of essentialist terms of women as nurturers and caregivers and how could they transgress and and in a way that kind of plays into the negative stereotypes that have us all where we are at the moment mm. you know um, so I thought that was really I thought that was really really fascinating and uh, just a really gripping part of the book for me um One of the things I've I've been asking everyone, Bernadine, um, who I've been interviewing for this series, uh, is about their relationships with libraries. Because this particular award, um, the Dublin Literary Award, is sponsored by libraries all over the world um, and the books are nominated by libraries. And it's exciting for me, I think, to see the books that come through and the sense that they have really, they've been They've been the books that people have engaged with as readers, you know. Mm. It's not necessarily a bunch of judges sitting around, although we do have a wonderful judging panel, but they aren't the people who originate the list. It comes from readers. It comes from libraries. Um, so I've just been asking everybody about their own relationships with
2: libraries. Do you do you feel that you were formed as a writer by your experience with libraries? Totally. I, I wouldn't have been a, become a writer if libraries hadn't existed because I grew up in... Um, you know, in a large family, we literally had no money, eight kids and well, that's enough really 8 kids. You've (laughs) got to be very rich to look after eight kids. So we didn't have books in the house. My mother had this tiny bookshelf that I think she inherited from her mother and it had some hardbacks in like Oliver Twist and and, and stuff. And so it had about 10 books in it, but that was it. So from the eight, and my mother also loved reading. So from the age of whatever age I was allowed to join the library was it five or six or whatever? I would go down with my siblings to the library on a Saturday and pick up, I think it would be two or three books and I would read them in the week. I was also, um, you know, from a family where we, we weren't allowed to go out and play, which kids did in the seventies. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of time on my hands because, yeah. you know, when you're, when you're in your primary school and junior school, you're not necessarily, you don't necessarily have homework. Um, television was very controlled then. Um, and that was it. That was the entertainment, right? Television, I don't know when it started. Was it six and finished at 10 or something ridiculous? <laughs> and so I spent my time reading and that was made possible through the library. Hmm. I don't have great recollections of the books I read because I never kept them. And so that's interesting, isn't it? So they, but, but they went in, they went in, they went in and they took me into the world of my imagination and, and then other aspects of my life, such as, you know, going to the youth theatre and then going to drama school and writing at drama school, all also contributed towards me being a writer. But it began with reading books. And I was only able to read books because of our local Woolwich Town library, which was free and it's still there, but unfortunately now it's, well, it's not unfortunately now it's being used as a sort of community space. And you see all these children having tutorials and group after classes and stuff. And it's lovely. And a lot of people using the computers and I, I, hope they're still reading books, but see, see the other thing to say is that I, I, obviously I studied literature at school, as we all did English and, and, and read books but it was a very prescribed reading. And also the interpretation of those books was very controlled by the teacher. So you had to to, um, agree with the teacher's interpretation of the text. And I think that was a really bad way of teaching, a really um, flawed pedagogical system from that era. But me choosing my own books at the library, the range of books that you had in a library, that was the other thing. And the fact that it could accommodate every age that you were. Right up to adulthood. That made reading for me something so exciting and adventurous and took me into other worlds as my, as my reading age progressed. And so, yeah, I can't, I can't praise libraries enough. And it's, it's so tragic that in, in the UK, they've been underfunded for so long now.
0: Absolutely. Um, and I, it's interesting, just as you were speaking there about the kind of notion of age ranges, I, I was struck by a, a memory from my own kind of engagement with libraries, which was when I graduated out of the kind of children's section of libraries, it's the only time in my life when I had a kind of a reading crisis, because I didn't know what to do next. You know, <laughs> there was just then the vast span of the adult library, which at the time, and I think in, in Ireland too, you know, there have been a slight kind of A slight diminishment in the, in the, maybe the, the, the scope of books that are available in some places because computers and things have been introduced. But still, most of them are fantastically stocked and the system here is really, really good. But there was that sense of, oh my God, there's this ocean of reading and where do I start, you know? And, but I think really that speaks of just how well guided the reading experience was in those earlier ages that you know you you could graduate to another level and this whole new vista of books would open up for you within that age range but look I'd just like to thank you so much for chatting to us this morning oh, that was you. absolutely fascinating and um, and I could I could keep you here all day chatting about the book <laughs> <laughs> and I would really encourage any of our listeners who haven't read it yet um, to get their hands on it you really won't regret it Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in to the other episodes as we count down to the 2021 Dublin Literary Award winner announcement.
1: And wherever you're listening from, you are invited to join us for the online award ceremony on Thursday, the 20th of May. You can book your free ticket at
0: www.ilfdublin.com and browse all the other fantastic events in this year's International Literature Festival Dublin programme.
1: Bye.